Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Glenn Mills, anchor with ABC4 News, Emily Means, reporter for KUER, and Dennis Romboy, editor and reporter for the Deseret News. Thank you for being with us this evening. Wow, so much happening at the local level in politics, ramifications we felt immediately in some cases, and into the next general election also, which will be very interesting. Uh, but there's going to be a little bit of a theme today, too, on some things. Resignations. We've seen a few of them that I want to talk about. And Glenn, let's go to you first, because we had a very high-profile resignation in the House this week. Uh, Representative Francis Gibson, the majority leader in the House, resigned uh, his position. It's a powerful position. Talk about that just for just a moment. Yeah, it's like we're seeing the great resignation play out in Utah politics now, just like we're seeing it play out with people leaving their jobs across the country since the start of the pandemic. This is very significant, though, because as you mentioned, it is the second most powerful Republican in the House stepping down. He is uh, citing family and career, which uh, likely is the reason for most of that. But I think there's uh, potentially more to that as well. When he took a look at the landscape, maybe he didn't feel like he was going to be able to go where he wanted to go when you're in leadership, obviously. The goal is to become the Speaker of the House, the most, power, uh, most powerful position. I do believe Speaker Wilson is going to run again, so he probably took a look at that, and maybe that had uh, some consideration in with it as well. But here we are in front of a uh, very crucial time, and the number two Republican in the House is uh, heading out, and it's going to shake things up. However, I think we're going to, for the most part, see people just move up in those leadership positions so it will remain pretty stable from what we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, Emily, are we see much of a shakeup? Or is it just kind of the case? People are next in line, they'll just move up? Because these there are elections to be held. They still have to run for these spots. I think, like Glenn said, that makes a lot of sense. And when you look at leadership, though, and you look at majority leadership in the legislature, it's mostly men. Uh, there's only one woman in leadership in the legislature, and that's Ann Milner in the Senate. In the House, there are none. Um, so one name that I've heard floated around is Representative Candace Perucci, and she's been described as kind of a rising star in the state GOP. So um, for me, I look at this as kind of a way for the Republicans in the legislature to bring in a new perspective, perhaps. And even though she's not currently in leadership, maybe this is a time to elevate her mm -hmm. to some level. Yeah, a lot of people doing calculations right now, and she's definitely one of them that's looking at that, too. Uh, D Dennis, it's interesting on the timing of all of this also, because uh, the word on the street is we may have a special session somewhere around November 9th for, on redistricting, and these elections will happen right before that. Yeah, there's some big issues that the legislature's facing that could come up really quickly here in November. Um, to have a leadership shakeup, I don't know if it has a huge impact. Um, the Republicans are still in control of the House and the Senate. Um, they'll drive the agenda. And you're, you're right, we have redistricting coming up, and also the Dixie name change might be uh, on that agenda as well. Uh -huh. I, I want to get to that Dixie name change in just a moment. But, but Dennis, while you're talking about this, an, another very interesting resignation from Representative Christiansen from West Jordan just last night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this happened late Thursday night. Uh, as you probably recall, he had a, well, 
uh, was part of a, a committee hearing uh, a couple of weeks ago that was a lot of misinformation about about the election here in Utah and, and, and wanting to do a, a forensic audit of the of the 2020 election in the state. That obviously drew the ire of uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor, the lieutenant governor oversees elections in the state. Uh, they were frustrated by that meeting and just the, the perception that gives that there might have been something wrong with the election here in Utah. The elections here have been safe and um, fair. Uh, for a, for a long time, even with all the mail-in, the you know the voting uh, processes that we use here in the state. Glenn, what do you make of this? Because uh, what Dennis was talking about was was very real. The response to his his presentation to the Judiciary Committee was very quick. From the governor, the lieutenant governor, even people in his own party went right after this yeah. this idea for an election, a forensic election audit. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, that kind of that context with his decision, and it wasn't just a resignation just from the legislature either. It was he's also quitting his employment. Yeah, I, I don't actually know why he's also quitting his employment, but he made it pretty clear as to why he's stepping aside from the legislature. And he said when he came into this, he expected attacks on himself. But he says at this point, they've gone too far to his wife and to his family, and that's why he's ready to uh, step aside. Uh, I will point out one other thing, though. Even prior to him picking up this election mantle, uh, you know, he was in some controversial positions before as well with uh, women's rights and pro-life legislation. You might remember when every female lawmaker in the Senate walked out in protest, mm -hmm. including Republicans, that was on his bill that would require a woman to get an ultrasound prior to having an abortion. So this isn't the first time he's uh, come under controversy. This has been something that's coming along over the years. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about that hearing at the judiciary um, with the election audit. I had asked one of the leaders of that committee why they were even entertaining this idea. It has been proven that there's nothing wrong with our elections here in Utah and largely throughout the country. And this legislator said to me, this is just something that one or two legislators is interested in pursuing. I'm assuming one of them being Steve Christiansen. Phil Lyman was also presenting at that committee hearing. So, I mean, it, it shows that they don't necessarily have the support of uh, the rest of the legislature, at least on that issue. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if, if Phil Lyman does pick this up or some other legislature wants to continue to push this issue and, and pursue that pursue that audit. Mm -hmm. We haven't heard from him as to- I, I, do think, I do think, as you pointed out though, Jason, there's not a lot of appetite even from within his own party to carry this on any further. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see uh, how the, how this ripples through and what the ramifications were, because I think we still hear some of these issues going forward. But Dennis, you, you brought it up. So let, let's talk about you know something no less controversial. Uh, the name change for Dixie. Uh, we have a proposal on the table now that the legislature has to consider. Utah Tech University. Yeah, I'm not sure if it has a real ring to it or, or not. Um, but. Yeah, that's the thing the legislature will have to consider. The legislature is the only uh, body that can name universities here in the state, and so this will be up to them. Mm -hmm. There is a small uh, group of opposition. If you probably noticed the commercials on TV aimed at lawmakers, uh, asking them not to change the name of, yeah. of Dixie State, um, which has been around for a long time. So yeah, this this is a controversy that, that's it's actually been a few decades in the making. That's yeah, true. Emily, talk about this for a second, because what Dennis mentioned is, is true. I'm not sure I would have anticipated actual commercials 
being produced and put out there about whether or not this name be changed. But this is a very real issue in that community uh, down down south, and um, it's going to rest on the legislature to make the ultimate decision. Right. Listen, I don't have TV, so I haven't seen those commercials, but... Okay, you're missing um, out. Yeah, like Dennis said, this is an issue that has been simmering for a long time in Utah, and I was looking back at some articles over the years, and the, the issue is is that Dixie has racist connotations that has ties to, to the Confederacy. Uh, Janetta Williams from the NAACP spoke out against it last legislative session, so that was just this year. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like there's time for a change, but you know, the legislature asked that there be a more extensive public input process. That's what they wanted, and it seems like that's what they've gotten, and this is the conclusion that uh, the Board of Education has come to. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about the state of Utah sort of on the national stage here, too. It's a story that you are following closely, Glenn, which is interesting is we've actually had representatives of the state of Utah in Washington, D.C. This, this last week trying to land the Republican National Convention. Talk about that for a minute. Saw you breaking some of the story. Yeah, so the Utah Republican Party teaming up with Visit Salt Lake to make that bid, uh, a delegation representing those organizations was in D.C. earlier this week making a pitch, which is the preliminary step to the site selection committee to bring that here to the state of Utah. I've uh, spoke with many people that were there. They felt very confident and good about the direction that is heading. There are still some steps they need to get uh, you know, some of the other state leaders on board to make sure that they can get behind this and, and have what they need to pull this off. But those who are supporting this feel really good about our capital city's uh, suitability to host this convention, which would obviously bring tons of people and tons of money into the local economy. But they point to the fact that we have hosted a successful Olympic Games. Uh, the hospitality that people experience when they're here. And really, one of the key missing links was the convention hotel, which will be done in time to host the 2024 uh, convention. Now, a lot of people are feeling good about that, but we know also that obviously Utah is not a swing state. We tend to see those rise above where Republicans can try to make some ground or Democrats for their convention. However, um, because of the fact that, one, the convention hasn't been held west of the Mississippi since 1996, and Republicans feel like they can bring the convention here to Utah and show off what they've been able to do here in the state. So people are feeling pretty good about it at this point. My understanding is there are six other cities in the running to make a bid as well, and the final request for proposal is still a few weeks out, so we could see more cities coming in and trying to get that as well. It's interesting, Emily, because uh, regardless of someone's politics, the, one of the arguments is that this is good for the economy, it's good for the state of Utah. But what do you think, uh, or at least what are you hearing, because one of the points Glenn just made is true, is our elected officials, those that are trying to land this deal, are saying there is sort of a Utah perspective. We're not really a swing state. We're not going to bring a ton of, you know, really votes to a certain person that's going to throw them over the top, but there's still a Utah way. There's a Utah approach, for the Republicans anyway, that make it so Utah is the ideal place for that kind of event. That's interesting. I don't really understand, honestly, why we would host the RNC here. Um, I guess to Glenn's point, we've hosted some other major events. We also hosted the vice presidential debate yeah. last year, so that's one thing that kind of put us out there on the national stage. Um, but for me, the way I'm holding this in my head, 
Uh, we are still struggling. The Republican Party is still kind of struggling with its identity. And if we look at um, the state GOP and the leadership there, very much um, Trump supporters. Our governor, on the other hand, not so much. He's spoken out against Trump. So um, I can see that perhaps getting in the way of Utah hosting the convention, just having our leadership uh, not be the most vocal Trump supporters while our um, while our state uh, GOP is. So yeah, maybe I think, some confusion. think about it. If, if if Donald Trump runs for president in 2024. The, I mean, that we would be the epicenter right. <laughs> of, of that event. Um, you know, Mitt Romney may or may not be around at that point in time. I mean, there's potential for yeah. fireworks there, obviously. That's true. More booing, perhaps. More booing, and, perhaps. And one other point I'll make to that, if it were Trump to get the nomination, that may make sense to bring the convention to the state of Utah, because this is a place he struggled, and maybe they would see that as an opportunity where he could gain more support in a Republican state in which he struggled in both 2016 and 2020. But he still took the state, to he, be fair. He did still win, win the state. Right, but true. he still came in much lower than what you would expect a Republican candidate to come in here in the state of Utah, especially as an incumbent. Well, let's talk about how these officials are doing mm -hmm. in the state of Utah, because uh, it does give a glimpse of what might be coming. And, and Dennis, uh, a poll that the Hinckley Institute just did with the Deseret News that we've been talking about this week kind of put this in context. So uh, tell us how this, this works with Biden's approvals uh, in particular, because in Utah, it's very interesting. 32% um, of Utahns approve and 65 percent disapprove of the job of the president. That is a pretty serious slide, not just in the state of Utah, but it sort of mimics the slide that he's having nationwide. Yeah, I think there was a short honeymoon period even here in Utah. Early on, I think he was in the 45 percent range or something like that when he first came into office. A lot has transpired uh, around the country and around the world uh, since that time. Um, obviously, the, the uh, chaotic uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the ongoing pandemic, the mandate for large businesses to vaccinate their employees, um, a whole host of issues, I think, contribute to his slide, not only here in Utah, but uh, nationally. But it's, it's more pronounced here in Utah. 65% of people disapproving of his job, um, that, that's, a, that's a high number. So, so it really is, Emily. And what kind of implications does that have? Because we've just been talking about how this is going to impact this next election cycle, the, the off-term, and then, the, then the, the next general election. Um, probably none here for Biden in Utah. We didn't <laughs> vote for Biden as a state. I wonder also if um, those numbers, uh, the polling numbers here in the state, have anything to do with Bears Ears and the Biden administration um, restoring the national monuments. Maybe well, that plays into it as well. You're adding another mm. big issue to the ones that Dennis just listed. I mean, any one of these things on their own starts to have an impact on someone. You put them all together and it certainly does start to impact that. The federal spending plans as well. I don't think a lot of Utahns are, are hip on spending trillions of more dollars uh, on social programs. Although the infrastructure uh, measure, I think, has some traction here and, uh -huh. and, and some support. But, but the other probably not much. One of the things we were, we were interested well, and in. Also, I'll just I'll just chip in real quick. Uh, it's a lot of voters, when it comes to the president, are looking at how the economy is impacting them. Everyone's feeling the impact of inflation right now. Prices are going up at the grocery store, at the gas pump. 
pretty much everything we pay for. And I think that contributes a lot to that approval rating as well. It does. Uh, one of the items we were looking at also in this poll was the, the handling of the COVID pandemic. And it's interesting uh, for President Biden, even on this, uh, Emily, this is the number 41% of Utahns approve, but it's gone up to 55% of Utahns disapprove of the handling of the pandemic from the Biden administration. I don't know. Honestly, honestly, the pandemic has been a blur for me. And as a reporter, especially, yeah. it's just we get we get the report every single day about the state COVID numbers. Um, and I don't know. I think maybe people are just kind of kind of tired yeah. of it. I'm, yeah. I know it's we can't just blow past this. Obviously, this is something we're still dealing with, but um, certainly fatigue and talking about it and hearing from Biden yeah. about it and. I mean, that's uh -huh. my best guess, Jason. Well, well, let's see how it compares to uh, what's happening with our own Governor Cox uh, on his approvals, Dennis. So in, our, in this poll that we did together, uh, he's at 55% approval and 26% disapproval. Pretty much a steady state for him all the way back to January. Yeah, I, I think he's kind of been a, an even-handed governor so far. Um, I don't think people have a lot to complain about in, uh, with his performance. Um, the economy here in Utah is good overall, uh, but we're facing the same kinds of issues with, with that Glenn just mentioned nationally with gas prices and and uh, grocery store prices. But I think the governor's been able to navigate all of that and and has been uh, you know steady, like I said, for, for the most part. Uh -huh. Certainly seems to be true. And in, in terms of uh, Glenn, the last thing on this too, because we also asked this question of uh, how Utahns feel that he has handled the pandemic, and he's at 58 percent approval in the, in the state. 31% disapproval, but his numbers have stayed high even there. So some of this fatigue I think Emily's talking about is true, but he's been able to stay pretty steady yeah. in that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt about it. It's just tough to lead in a pandemic. You're just not going to win with some people. And, and I would have to think that he has to take a look at that number and be pretty happy with it. Yeah, that's true. That no one wins in pandemics. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We all lose. Exactly. Exactly. He's, exactly right. he's pushed back a little bit on Washington or in the in on the White House with the uh, with the vaccine mandate for businesses and and that kind of thing. So that that probably helps him too. Mm -hmm. So let, can we talk about another resignation? So Emily, I know you were covering this. All of you were. So I, I can't wait to get your insights onto this. But our independent redistricting commission, uh, so they submitted three maps officially, and before there's a vote on those three maps, another high profile resignation from that committee. So much drama with the redistricting commission this week. Uh, we saw former Congressman Rob Bishop resign from the committee right in the middle of the meeting. Uh, he said that the commission was too metrocentric, meaning five of the seven commissioners lived along the Wasatch Front, and he thought that meant um, it would lead to maps that didn't include, congressional maps that yeah. didn't include both rural and urban areas of the state in each district. So he was pretty upset about that. He was. And he left. <laughs> and uh, almost immediately after, House Speaker Brad Wilson, who appointed Bishop to the commission, put out a statement saying, I totally agree with Bishop. Uh, this <clears throat> solidifies my concerns about the commission as well. So uh, it wasn't a, wasn't a great way to start the week. And not only that, but the week before uh, the commission is set to present its maps to the legislature. Uh -huh. uh, a couple key components to this too. Uh, Dennis, I wanna get your, your statement. The, the first part that Emily just talked about is true. There's, there's still this disagreement with some about whether or not we're gonna carve the state up like a pizza or we're gonna start to carve out some places that are, maybe have a democratic stronghold or more donut than pizza. We've talked about on the show, but that is the heart of a lot of this, this controversy and why 
Congressman Bishop, former Congressman Bishop resigned. Yeah, before I get that, I mean, the funniest part to me was that he wore shorts to the meeting, knowing that he'd have to drive home that right. night. He, he wanted, drove all the way all to, the, way to, the, to meeting the meeting from Brigham to City resign. to resign, and then wore shorts so he could drive home comfortably. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but that's been every ten years. I think we uh, we it's the same arguments. How do we divide the state up? when the populace is here in, in the Salt Lake along the Wasatch Front and more, more spread out in the rural, how do we divide that up fairly? And um, I, this is an issue every 10 years, and I don't know that uh, they've gotten it right yet. I think this commission was supposed to offer some good alternatives, but again, the decision rests with the legislature. They can decide how to carve up these congressional districts, districts uh, however they want to. Mm -hmm. So, Glenn, that's, I guess, part, part two of the big discussion here, too, is uh, who should decide this? And that's uh, so something that Congressman Bishop was talking about, but uh, Speaker Brad Wilson, but members of the legislature, too, with the argument coming from them was the people who should decide are the people who are accountable to the voters themselves. Explain that argument a bit. Yeah, so... Speaker Wilson made that clear in his statement, but he's been saying that all along. And their argument is that, you know, they're up for election every two years, uh, in the Senate every four years. Uh, so they argue that they are the ones accountable to the people. Supporters of the Independent uh, Redistricting Commission will argue that this is a way you can hold lawmakers accountable by taking this independent review of the districts and taking a look at whether lawmakers accept that or reject it. Now, one thing I'll say is, as we know, this is an advisory committee. They don't have any binding authority. And I've never got the sense from day one that the legislature was going to end up uh, adopting one of the maps as it came from this commission. I always have talked, uh, heard from you know sources and lawmakers that they believe in the end uh, that one of those maps would not be adopted as the official plan. Yeah, I just want to add, I talked with a political scientist about this drama, and that's what it looks like to us, right? But um, like Glenn said, the commission, the commission's only role is an advisory one, right? So it says, hey, we took all this public feedback, we adjusted our maps based on that public feedback, here, legislature, do what you want with them. We hope you'll take them. But what Bishop's resignation does and Wilson's statements that perhaps uh, the commission may need to be revisited, what that does is undermine public support in the commission. And that's really all it had going for it because uh, because its whole, uh, its whole goal is to recommend these maps that the public gave feedback on. And also, just a reminder, this is something that the people of Utah voted for. The majority of voters in the 2018 election voted for this as a ballot initiative, and this is something they wanted to see built. So, um, true, yes, the legislature makes the final decision, but uh, the question is, what is the commission's role in that, and how much power will they have after Bishop's resignation? It's interesting to see these various maps that are being submitted and worked on right now because, of course, our congressional delegation watching these very closely to see what that decision finally is. Uh, I, want, I want to talk about a Senate race for just a moment, if, if we can, because we've done some polling on this. Of course, our senators aren't as worried about these, these lines here, uh, but some, some brand new polling that kind of gives uh, us, Dennis, for the very first time, a view of what's happening in Mike Lee's Senate race. Uh, he has uh, two Republican challenges right now, so uh, some polling results that no one has seen yet, but I want to talk about this for a second. Uh, if the election were held today, this is uh, uh, these are Republicans who said they're going to vote or they're going to affiliate and vote. Uh, Mike Lee's sitting at 53 percent. 
Becky Edwards at 7%, Ali Isom 2%, with uh, 6% saying not sure yet, and uh, well, 32% saying don't know, and 6% saying, well, maybe some other Republican. Yeah, and then that's a fair amount that don't know, but it, it's early on. Um, but even, even as early as it is, it shows that uh, Ali Isom and Becky Edwards have a lot of ground to cover before the primary election. And these were likely GOP primary voters that we sampled. And M Mike Lee has a, he's popular among, among the Republican base here in the state. And um, these other two candidates, uh, they're just not well known yet. Um, they have an opportunity to become known, but they have a lot to overcome, uh, especially with, with the base that he has at, at the state convention. Both of them are going to gather signatures. They'll be on the ballot. There will be a primary election. Um, but yeah, they have some ground to make up. Yeah, Glenn, talk about this makeup here because what Dennis just talked about is right. It's it's hard for a challenger in any event when you have a an incumbent. But but in, in our poll, is, uh, when you just talk about these Republicans, Mike Lee with that particular group is sitting at 61 percent approval with yeah. with just Republicans. Yeah, that's a lot of ground to make up. What what I'll add to this conversation is this: I think the consensus is that if both uh, Allie and Becky make the primary ballot, there's no way Senator Lee doesn't come out on top of that. If one of them makes the ballot, it could be potentially a tighter race. And I wouldn't be surprised if down the road, I don't know at what point, the two of them come together and decide which one of them will remain in the race and which one of them won't. That would not surprise me one bit if we saw that happen. Uh, one more interesting thing in our poll that I want to make sure we talk about today is interesting is uh, we're about to get uh, some approval from you know, our, our federal uh, oversight committees about letting uh, children get, become vaccinated. So Emily, very interesting in this poll because we asked Utahns with children, will you get the vaccine? This is the kids five to 11 years old. And the interesting number was 21% of those surveyed have children said they're going to wait to see. 18% said they will not be getting this vaccine. It's very interesting, particularly considering it's not a partisan question, at least at what our poll is saying. I wonder what they're waiting to see. Um, when I last checked the vaccination stats for the state, we're at like less than 60% for the entire state. Obviously, we have a lot of young Utahns here. So if people in this age range, 5 to 11, are able to get vaccinated, if their parents vaccinate them, I have a feeling we'll make up a lot of ground on that. And something that I have seen um, from parents is, you know, they children are vulnerable. Um, it's not just older folks who have, uh, who are immunocompromised. There are children who are also immunocompromised, and this will be a huge game changer for them. What, 20 percent of all the new cases are children right now, and half of those are children ages 5 to 10. So they are getting sick, you know. We'll watch this one closely, and we're going to have to make some decisions soon, some of these parents. Thank you very much for your great comments this evening. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.